Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Catherine May, author of Wintering and Enchantment, and this is How We Live Now, a podcast that looks for pathways through this post-everything world. Each season, we ask a range of wise people a common question and roam around in the breadth and depth of our knowing. How We Live Now is made possible by my brilliant community at Substack. For newsletters, book clubs, live hangouts and ad-free episodes of this podcast, go to katherinemay.substack.com. Hi. I'm walking through the kind of low-density rain that we specialise in by the sea. It looks like it's absolutely nothing, but when you get home you're drenched. I quite often think that it's really just a sea fog that takes over the whole town sometimes, and you don't realise you're in it until it recedes. Well, it's here today, for sure. We predicted thunderstorms. We've got mizzle instead. And I went out with my shorts. <laughs> Although I don't mind that at all. I can feel it on my legs, it's kind of nice. I'm just walking home through the alleyways of Whitstable and all this fog is reminding me of the Mabinogian the wonderful medieval Welsh cycle of myths. And in one of them, a fog rolls in and covers the whole of Wales. It turns out to be an enchantment sent over from Ireland as part of a very long tit-for-tat war going on, a magical one. And that leads me nicely thinking about this week's guest, Amy Jeffs, who is an artist, an art historian, whose books include her own amazing woodblock illustrations, as well as retellings of the myths of the British Isles in ways that I think 
really helped to understand, if it's not too grand a claim, the national psyche. We know so little of our own mythology. It always surprises me that, and the way that stories are connected to place very specifically. And that's why I wanted to talk to Amy, because she has such deep, deep, rich knowledge. But also because she can speak so eloquently about the way that understanding the stories, the myths, the folklore, she makes a big distinction between those things, of the places that we know well, can help us to read the world in a very different way. I'm going to get out of the rain. I hope you enjoy the episode. Amy, welcome to How We Live Now. I'm so thrilled to have you on. When I was planning this season with the question, how can we re-enchant this world? I immediately thought of you because your work, I think, has reignited uh, a readership that, that maybe we didn't know exist who are really interested in British folklore. Did you know they were out there? <laughs> well, I don't claim to have any particular expertise on folklore. I came at it from such a academic point of view initially. I think mm. maybe maybe not initially initially when I was 17 or so I you know I bought Catherine Briggs book of British folklore and would read the stories in that and I think that's always stayed in the back of my mind. Um and then mm. I came back to stories through um through studying medieval art history and especially became interested in um, illustrated later medieval manuscripts containing the origin myths of Britain, which have definite folkloric elements and probably are rooted to some extent in folklore. So you've got this idea of Britain having initially been called Albion and uh, been emptied up for a race of giants and and, uh, and these <laughs> giants are, are wiped out by Trojans um, led by a guy called Brutus, who ultimately gives his name to Britain and founds a new Troy that becomes London. And in, in these texts, it's, it, they're mostly derived from a 12th century text by a man called Geoffrey of Monmouth. He wrote a history of the kings of Britain, that you do get some names of characters he presents as legendary mortal kings and queens that seem to echo certain names that we know were given to um, pre-Christian Celtic gods and goddesses. So there's something in these, although when I came, when I'm studying them, you know, and these like 14th century manuscripts, they are quite highly crafted political myth-making objects. They're not around the fireside so much. They're more um, politically engaged than that or kind of applied. Yeah, there is is that dimension to it. So I I just found them interesting because... When I started illustrating them, which I did for fun, I found myself looking at a series of illustrations of giants being thrown off cliffs, goddesses giving <laughs> prophecies, old ladies getting their boobs out on the battlefield, you know, just oh, <laughs> normal these, stuff, everyday stuff. I'm not sure. I'm allowed to stuff, but I was like, oh, these are really, these are genuinely yeah, everyday things. No, good <laughs> stories, good stories that I can imagine coming across as a child and loving and actually still loving as an adult. And it was a revelation because I'd been looking at them with such dry academic. Yeah, yeah. Was, you know, in, in this way. And then um, it was my supervisor, Alex Bovey. She's now deputy head of the Courtauld, but she's a great storyteller. And it was hearing her talk about the giants of Albion as well that made me think, gosh, this is proper stuff. I didn't come at this consciously with an idea of, of finding a readership interested in folklore. I was just assumed that everybody loves stories mm. and that these were really good stories that I didn't think that many people knew. Yeah. I mean, it really strikes me as I read your work, how little most of us know about these stories. You know, we've got this kind of vague understanding of Arthurian legend, maybe, perhaps without really knowing many details about it. Mm. And I don't know. I don't know how much we really know about these mythologies in the way that maybe other nations would. Do you get that sense or is it just yeah, me yeah. that's not really come across me in my life? No. <laughs> I don't think it's... <laughs> I think, well, I, I remember when we we did a course as part of my BA on the display of art 
I was doing art history and went on museums and especially kind of the, the national museums. And I became interested to discover that England has no national museum. Wales does. Ireland, wow. Scotland does. Mm. England has the British Museum <laughs> and claims the lot. <laughs> Which is often about other cultures. Yeah. yeah and yeah. sort of presents it. But I feel as though in England particularly, and I am conscious of my, although a lot of the stories that I've enlisted in Storyland or Forising Storyland come from British or Welsh cultures originally, they mm. were appropriated by the English in the Middle Ages. And I write as a Somebody who was born in England is English and has studied predominantly medieval English culture. Mm. And so I think this issue isn't quite as pronounced, perhaps, in other countries within the United No, Kingdom. no, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, the English especially just assume that <laughs> that their role isn't to dig down into their own identities, but is to kind of mm. make other ones. <laughs> It's so interesting. There's a, there's a kind of English embarrassment yeah. about having a culture almost. And and I think that comes on one hand from us thinking that we're more advanced than everyone else and more rational and so we don't need it. And then there's that kind of fear from the left maybe that, you know, an over-interest in national culture tips over into sort of supremacy and racism quite easily. And, and between the two, we've become very shifty when when it comes to addressing our own culture. Yeah, I think it's interesting. In, in a 12th century text by Gerald of Wales, he's one of my favourite authors of all time. It's uh, a great name. He, yeah, <laughs> he talks, he's, he is Welsh, as you probably gathered from him. <laughs> one would hope. Um, and he, uh, he talks about, uh, at this time, the English to him are an oppressed and slightly humiliated, very humiliated race because they are under the Normans. And so he he talks about how the Welsh are confident and hot-headed and say what they think. And, <laughs> and this is because they're descended from Trojans who who w- were originated on the hot plains of Troy. And the English are this kind of timid, cold-blooded, cold-faced sort of... Oh dear. <laughs> uh, it's quite, it's really funny to read because... You know, he because at this point they're they're under Norman rule, and yeah, he feels terribly yeah. sorry for them. And I think it's it's nice to um to see how cultural stereotypes shift, and it's probably self perception as well. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I know much more Welsh and Irish folklore than I do English folklore, mm. and I wonder if there's something in there about that Norman rule and the Roman rule that came before it, and the way that our identity has been disrupted so many different times over the course of history. I mean, maybe we've just had too much eroded during the the sort of last two millennia. Yeah, it's interesting. The, so Roman rule, really, you feel that the, the effects of that so strongly in the British, as in mm. Welsh-British um, myth and in things like the Mabinogion, where that the theme of invasion is yeah, so yeah, large. And, uh, yeah. and even, you know, there are legendary kings and queens who they present Roman rule not as an occupation but as a time when the British kings were Roman emperors you know that mm, it's not mm. seen so much as but there is this kind of uh, consciousness of invasion um obviously the next swathe of invaders become the English they're coming from Scandinavia right. and I wonder if partly what's happened is some of this yeah it's, it's, it's a really odd one I because then the English fall under Norman rule and the Normans appropriate the British myth of, <laughs> and present that as what the the Saxons then inherited as kings who took over. It's, it, you know, it's the, the sort of the, there was a rupture with maybe the Scandinavian heritage with stories of Woden and Wayland and all of that mm. with Norman rule. I think you're right, but you know, who knows? It's bloody ages ago, but. Um, yeah, we don't remember. <laughs> I think it's, there's a lot more fascinating. I mean, what you're, when you were telling just just now telling me the kind of, broad thrust of this conversation potentially and you mentioned folklore and and myth i i was thinking folklore is such an interesting one because quite often it's hard to pin down when it comes from there are a yeah. couple of very very folkloric episodes and by folkloric i suppose i mean not with great political import but maybe yeah. personal i often think that folklore has a personal dimension. Oh, that's in, that's the distinction you make, is it? That, that folklore is more personal and myth is more mm. grand and political. Yeah. And maybe cosmological. Mm-hmm. So mm. it has to do with, with 
origins and and things whereas folklore is perhaps more about life lessons cautionary tales about you know jenny green teeth living beneath the duckweed of the is it the lincolnshire <laughs> waterway yeah to ready to eat you if you fall in you know that's that's a kind of that i think sounds like folklore. yeah and there are a couple of moments like that in gerald of wales where you know a little boy he, he meets a priest on the road and um Gerald, he's, you know, it's like a memoir, what he writes, he's talking, he's, he's the Catherine May of the 12th century. Well, I mean, obviously I, you know, I have my forebears. <laughs> he does a journey through um, Wales and he does a sort of topography of Ireland, he calls it. And the journey through Wales, I think it is, he meets a priest called Elidir, who tells him about this time when he was a little boy and he was hiding from his school teacher and he, he ran down the side of a riverbank and hid in the kind of overhang. Right. He fell into a fairy world. Oh, and that happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he says the world, and it, this world is consistent with other descriptions of fairy worlds in medieval literature. It's it's twilight. The people there are very small. They have mm. golden hair. They eat only milk pudding flavored with, um, coloured with saffron. So oh wow! Slightly yellow. Uh, they've got little horses the size of greyhounds, and he plays with the king's son with a golden ball. And then he takes the golden ball home. And he's been sworn to seek when he escapes when he leaves. He, and he goes there back there a few times. But he, one day his mother sees the golden ball, and he's gone home. And um, he's been sworn to secrecy, but she presses him. And he eventually tells her and then all of the fairies come marching into his kitchen and take the golden ball away and and close the door to the fairy world so he can never go back. And it's one of these really distinctively fairy tale like folklore. Right. Stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, one yeah. of the things that I liked about this, these medieval texts is that you could pin down the date, whereas a lot of, say, Catherine Briggs collection of this really seminal collection of folklore, mm. they're collected from storytellers from maybe the 70s and 80s or it went with and it's, they've of these stories have obviously existed within an oral tradition for a long time but how long you know yeah it and it's very very hard to tell isn't it yeah. and I and actually it, you know I've come to folklore fairly late and I found at first that I had to really get past my own desire because like my trainings as a sociologist mm-hmm to exactly situate every single piece of information. Like, well, where is this from and what's the evidence? And, you know, where's it? And of course, that just doesn't exist. I think you end up in this kind of, um, well, I've ended up in this this tug of war with myself, where on the one hand, I want to do what you're saying. And, and it's probably yeah. quite a, I don't know, patriarchal impulse to taxonomize and, and organize and all that kind of thing. But there's also a wonder in antiquity, I have to say, that the trying to when when you have got a story from a 12th century text about a boy falling into fairyland, you think, mm. now that is really old. You know, we're not just making it up. These stories really have very, yeah. very ancient roots. And of course, they're at ones even older from from other cultures that maybe have wrote things down earlier than than we did here. But at the same time, you want to accept that stories that you hear while you're walking down the road are just as exciting. Yeah. And yeah. I'm thinking of, I mean, when I moved to my parents and I moved to a village in Gloucestershire and I got to know an old lady there who wrote a village history in, when she first moved there in 15, 1959. And this isn't a story of magic particularly, it's just a silly story, but she she collected various um, anecdotes and things from the villagers who were there when she first got there. And, she mm. down. and one of them was about a man in the village, a farmer who was so strong, he could vault a gate carrying three sheep, one under each arm, the other in his, <laughs> his teeth. Oh, I love that. I hope he existed. Yes. <laughs> And then it brings you right up to the present and you think there are stories being spun the whole time. And this is what, when I was reading your book, Enchantment, I was thinking about that idea of, yes, of questing, questing through Mm. archives, whatever it might be, to find these ancient, ancient stories and to marvel at their their age. And then they actually, I think, tune you in to the same things happening in the corner shop. Mm, yeah, the the act of telling. And in fact, as you're speaking as well, I'm I'm thinking, you know, fairy tales, the the figure of the fairy still exists really coherently in our culture now mm-hmm. without having any, you know, without us having underst- an understanding of that lineage, but we definitely know what a fairy is and where a fairy lives and what a fairy might do. Yes. And even despite the disnification of fairies, I think we still have an understanding that there's a there's maybe another kind as well. Mm-hmm. And therefore, actually, 
probably that folklore persists much more than we sometimes think it does. Yeah, I think the uh, there's. I mean, I'm spending a lot of time with a two year old at the moment, <laughs> and um, I think the the instincts that she has to apply concepts she's learned in the everyday to things she's seeing when we go on walks. You can see how they very easily welcome ideas like the fairies. So you know she. She knows from the Gruffalo's child that the fox lives in an underground house. And so when we mm. go to the woods and she sees a hole under a tree, she says, this is the fox's underground house. And then the idea that other things might have houses, that the woodlice need a house. And, yes. and then tiny houses are, mm. are suddenly an idea. And then, you know, what about tiny people? <laughs> it's, it's, and all then that, that imaginative journey needs is, is a story or something to suggest tiny people and suddenly the whole world of fairy opens up to her. But when you're a child, the the notion of tiny people makes a whole load of things make sense. I mean, I remember sincerely believing that tiny people lived in the TV (laughs) and in the tape cassette player. You know, I was convinced there were little people with little instruments playing the music. Yes. And I remember being utterly convinced by the Cottingley fairies when I first read about that in, you know, one of those books about esoterica that children read. Yeah. And it was utterly convincing to me, like, why not? Why wouldn't there be tiny people living somewhere else, somewhere that isn't quite with us? Here's a thought, I quite have a question. Um, you know, when I was a child and I first read Harry Potter, because I was, I think, I, you know, I was a contemporary of Harry's an age when when they, their stories began. Uh, so young. And I remember, <laughs> <laughs> I remember lying on my bed, just being convinced I had made my lampshade move with my eyes. And, and then being like, I've made, I've made that happen. I, I am, I'm a witch, you know, and I'm sure that that's happening the world over every day with the Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think in reading medieval myths about, which myth is such a silly word to use, I suppose, about these medieval stories, because at this time, at the time they were being written, they were, they were being presented as the, as deep history. And it, but it was just a, a kind of history that operated differently from how we construct history. It was a history that admitted prophets and giants and magicians. Yeah. And, and so this is, you know, in these deep, these stories about the deep history of Britain that I was reading, there is a sense in which because you're you're presenting this to an audience that already think they're really great you know so you're, mm. you're writing about if you're giving your history of of britain to a norman readership that has effectively claimed that history yeah. presenting that history as having come from derived ultimately from troy and the heartlands of of the great classical works or classic works of literature mm. the classical period is completely propping up what they already, you know, it's what everyone wants, what they want to hear. And so yeah. there's this already very willing and unskeptical audience receiving these histories. And so sure, you know, they might not see giants in their everyday now, but there are giants in the Bible and, you know, why not? And and this kind of consent to believe that's very easily... Mm. It becomes a kind of conspiracy of belief almost yeah. between the invader and the invaded. Like here's a story we make together that makes sense of both of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so then I just wonder, like with, with children, you can, you want to believe that you're a witch and you want to believe there are fairies. And so all someone has to say is here's a doctored fo- Victorian photograph of yes. girls playing with fairies. <laughs> and you're like, all right, cool. You know. <laughs> yeah. All right, then that's fine. That's I'll fine. take that. That's great. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to go and look for some at the bottom of my garden. Yeah. I think also as a child in the back of your mind somewhere, you know, I mean, it's a, yeah, it does it does it mean that we're somehow that we're kind of we've moved we've grown up, we've moved on, that we we don't we no longer have that instinct to believe um right, adults yeah. or, or what's I remember a man with a um a prosthetic leg once he didn't I did he didn't tell me he had a prosthetic leg, why would he? And he he um I was sitting next to him in the pub and he picked he said, Have I shown you what I can do? And this is I was an adult now, and I said no, and he picked up his foot by the ankle turned his leg upside down, hinged at the knee, put his pint <laughs> oh, on the sole of his foot and drank out of his pint glass from the sole of his foot. And <laughs> the first thing I thought was, magic is real. <laughs> <laughs> it was like this great, like, like, oh, I knew it <laughs> moment. Um, and then, and then realised actually there was a mechanical explanation. <laughs> but maybe it's all in in within us somewhere that if, if yeah, suddenly I, I think it is. We want to believe, and I I think it also points to 
this idea that we now see in social media, which is that we all want to be part of the centre of the action. Like nobody wants to feel peripheral to Mm -hmm. everything that's going on. And so if I'm going to see pictures of cutout fairies taken by Victorian schoolgirls and believe in them, I'm going to do that because I want that to be happening close to me too. I want that to be part of my life and I want to believe that magic can come close. This is very interesting. I mean, right now I'm, I'm thinking a lot about um, sanctity Mm. and medieval um, ideas around saints. And I was, I was looking at a, you know, back in, in 2015, I was working in the British Museum digitizing their collection of pilgrim souvenirs, Mm. uh, which are little lead alloy tokens that medieval people who weren't necessarily that well off because these were very affordable, would have bought when they went to visit a sacred shrine and then they'd sort of come out of the shrine and and presumably on market stands in the cathedral close, there would be these uh, stalls heaped high with... And in lead alloy, this particular type of lead alloy, a eutectic lead tin alloy, uh, <laughs> casts very thin and very shiny. And so it's super cheap. And it's also very glitzy. And so, you know, these these stalls would have really dazzled the eye when you came out into the sunlight mm. from the shrine um, and you could have bought five for a penny or, or something. They would show um, maybe the reliquary bust of the saint you had just venerated inside the cathedral that would be a miniature version of that and you could wear it on your hat or on your bag as you made your journey home. Oh, so you you bought it home rather than leaving it as an offering? Yeah, so these are, you would, you would leave offerings. The things that people left tended to be, if you were poor or not wanting to spend too much money, for whatever reason, <laughs> you, um, you might leave a wax uh, model of, say you'd gone with a bad leg or, or you had, uh, yeah. and if you had prayed, you'd, you'd had a bad leg, back home, you'd prayed to that saint, received healing. You would then make a journey of thanks to the shrine and leave a wax leg <laughs> to say as a, I as a see. motive. Yeah. Um, but then you would come out and you'd you'd take something for your journey home. And though these badges also, they were called signs. You know, they were also a sign that you were patronized by that saint. And it would be a reminder of for you to pray to them next right, time you have right. difficulty. Like an attachment to them. But uh, one one image that I, f- I find quite moving is that of the vernacle, the holy face, which is associated with St. Veronica. She's a completely legendary saint. Does that, that mean there's no kind of historical evidence yeah, that she no, yeah. actually and existed? There's no, she's, mm. not even, she's not even scriptural. She just... Right. But she's extremely established in medieval Christianity and in contempt- modern Catholicism. You know, she's um, depicted in the Stations of the Cross, which are these you know, scenes of the Christ's passion that are put up around churches. Mm. And supposedly she met Christ on, on the road to the crucifixion as he's carrying the cross and wiped her, his face with her veil and his face was imprinted onto the veil. Another version right. of the story that I particularly prefer, to be honest, which is in Caxton's Book of, of Saints, is that she was a painter trying to, she'd go to Christ's talks when he was not on, okay. not uh, about to be crucified, but when he was more in full swing. And she would, she'd go home and try to do his portrait and she could never capture his likeness, but she just really wanted his portrait at home. And then one day he comes up to her and says, why do you keep running off from all my lectures? (laughs) (laughs) And she says, oh, I just really want a picture of your face and I can't get it. And so he takes her handkerchief and presses his face into it and imprints his face in her handkerchief. Um, And in both versions Uh... of the legend, you end up with this direct transfer image of Christ's face on the cloth. Um, And the cloth became known as the Sudarium. I think there were at least three in existence, but that were said to, to have been the real, each one said it was the real one, you know, but, mm, mm. and they were all venerated in medieval Christendom and to this day, in fact. And um, any image made based on that sudarium had the kind, had the authority, you know, making an image of God, the son of God, was a very yeah. potentially risky thing to do. Yeah. But if you had an image with such authority as a direct imprint, then you could copy that image and you're kind of referring back to that that authoritative original. And so this this little lead alloy token of a vernicle, as they were known, uh, Veronica is derived from the Latin vera icon, meaning true image. Ah, okay. So this this little lead alloy vernicle that I digitised when I was working in the British Museum was one of many, many thousands that people would have bought and worn. But it shows Christ's face fully, a full kind of frontal portrait of his face, a bit like he's just poked his head through a hole in a white wall. You know, he's got no... He's got no um, 
neck, no shoulders, you know, but his beard has come through. And uh, but he's looking directly at you. And even on this little primitive lead alloy token, that gaze is making eye contact with you. But it's got a kind of direct line of transmission in the medieval belief system to the very gaze of Christ. And so- which is an extraordinary idea. And and it, you know, the power of it is so much greater than than now when we're so used to photographs and mm-hmm. you know film Im- images exactly. i mean we're, we're inured to that now really but it would have been so powerful so then. powerful and this idea that you were talking about of being part of something bigger so even though you might mm. might be someone who could just afford to buy this image in lead you know in the cheapest material you could get it in yeah to take that home and to own it and to look into that gaze and to imagine mm. that line of transmission made you, you you were you were making eye contact in a sense yeah probably yeah. heretical what i'm saying now but there's you know, there's there's this idea of being part of something eternal and something huge and something full of supernatural potential mm. We'll return to the episode in just a moment, but How We Live Now is part of a community and I wanted to recommend another podcast that I think you'll love. Hi, we're the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we became friends through our mutual love of reading. And soon after launched a podcast that's now entering its seventh year. We talk about the books we're reading, have read, and hope to read. And share biblio adventures of our literary explorations throughout New England, here in the United States, or wherever our travels take us. We regularly interview authors and others in the world of books and host quarterly read-alongs with our listeners. A new episode drops every other Tuesday. After six years, there's a big backlist you can dip into or jump right in with our most current episode. Find us on your favorite podcast app or stream directly from our website, bookcougars.com. That's B-O-O-K-C-O-U-G-A-R-S.com. Happy listening and reading. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, there's there's this idea of being part of something eternal and something huge and something full of supernatural potential. Mm, yeah, and you're you're part of this direct lineage to the origin of that image Mm -hmm. which leads me to make uh, a sort of slightly clumsy segue to (laughs) the images in your book because unusually you illustrate and write at the same time which must be an extraordinary thing to be able to do and I just I wondered about for you what that means to create your I think uh, Storyland is lino cuts and Wild is wood engravings. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It's actually a great segue, isn't it? Because um, Christ's um, I tried. He, he imprints his face, and so to go from print to print, is exactly. Like, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. really deft. I was I was going for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I um, what Storyland began. It was very funny, really. I felt like oh, what, what way around was it? I felt very nervous about writing when I wrote Storyland. I had written right. a PhD, but it's such a different genre from writing for a general audience. I, yeah, you know, I, I was finishing it, finishing it as I started Storyland. And, you know, you're allowed to use the passive voice with complete abandon. No one's going to chastise you for lack of style. You know, it's the... It's, the, um, <laughs> yeah. you don't it's, it's actively encouraged, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. You assume that your audience knows more than you, which is quite often, you know, you're yeah. when you're writing for a general audience... Assume they know nothing. Uh, you obviously writing for a general audience. You as you generally you, you largely assume an intelligent reader, but you don't assume uh, they have the same expertise as you. So you know, whereas yeah. writing a PhD, you're aiming it directly at people who might share 
your expertise, if not no, considerably more. So I was going into a completely different world of writing in writing Storyland. On the other hand, pictures. I had been making pictures since I was a child and I've always loved it. And it's always been a, a source of great relaxation. I'd finally mm. found a medium, lino cut or printmaking, relief printmaking, in which I felt really free. And I was very confident in this medium's ability to um, to capture the, the magic of the particular stories I wanted to illustrate. Right. But it was like a little bit like your question then. I, I mean, I, was, I kept thinking people are going to call me up on the writing. People are you know, going to say, are going to ask me questions about that. But everyone seemed to assume that I could write. <laughs> that I, the writing was the thing that I'd found easy and that the pictures were the scary bit, um, which was a funny surprise in the... Well, that probably the- shows you the, the kind of biases of the publishing world. You know, we're all like, expect everyone to be able to turn out a good sentence, but, um, <laughs> but drawing is very impressive to us. <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was a funny one. But um, I found that Lino, this this me, me particular medium, this relief printmaking with black ink, I, I, I've never d- gone into colour. So in my case, I've got synesthesia. So my version of synesthesia is that all numbers and letters have colours. Oh wow! Very very crowded, and um, and re- and so every I remember when I was learning to read, going past road signs and things, and them kind of flying into my brain in these in these bright colours. Yeah. And I remember yeah. my mum talking to me and seeing the words running past like behind my forehead in different wow. colours and and telling her and my mum who's wonderful um just being like laha funny you know <laughs> and um children say the funniest things yeah. <laughs> um and I I thought yep I'm making it up I've just imagined it and so for the rest of my childhood genuinely for the you know years after that I would try and catch myself out making it up I would you wow. know, jump in to my own thoughts and be like, you just pictured that word, but you were thinking about picturing that word with all its different colours, you know. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was 15, 16 that um, I was talking about it with a friend on the bus. And then all the other kids were like, that's so, that's not a thing, Amy. You know, that's, yeah, that's it's unusual. Should, and so then I, but anyway, but basically what the upshot is that I really, I'm very happy in black and white with notebooks, yeah, with stationery, everything black and white. Um, and very happy going out on Exmoor where there are absolutely no words anywhere. <laughs> and if I get, yeah, I get you just must. right, I don't even have to think. So then. Gosh, that's so interesting. So sorry, this is completely off topic, but that made me think, what are films with subtitles like for you? Well, all right, they're already, um, it's already happening because generally films have, if the subtitles are going, words are happening. So it's. it's okay. If, so it's, yeah. So it doesn't make any difference if they're written down. Yeah. If there's Amazing. dialogue anyway, it's, if there's subtitles in another language, that's pretty nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the, you know, this, this black and white yeah. medium. So you really, stuck with your kind of monochromatic palette to, to keep things gentle for you, I guess. It just grows out of the, the black of the, of the text. Mm. I really enjoyed And I, was, I realized the manuscripts that I'd been studying, they were often illustrated in pen and wash, often the same ink you, being used for the pen drawings as had been used for writing the text in the in wow, okay. book um, and that there's a really lovely narrative synthesis going on there between text and image that I wanted to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about the, the particular way that I was approaching Lino Cut was inspired by an artist called Chris Pig, who I met in, in Somerset where I live. And he, um, he does these, these quite large scale Lino Cuts with very detailed areas. He's very technically accomplished but he also leaves large areas of black and in these right. with these medieval stories where there was so much mystery surrounding them or kind of so much negative space that had so much aesthetic impact yeah I also makes sense wanted to to um incorporate these this this negative space and um so that's you know in nearly every illustration there are areas of black yeah okay so at, at the time when so I hadn't really realised the continuity of illustration, that there would have been illustrations with the original texts as well as with your text. To me, I thought that was an innovation. So that's, that's how much I know. But I was, I was wondering if at the time most people would have seen those illustrations or would they have received those stories outside of a written format more? And is, so is there a different way that we're receiving that information now? Yes. Okay. So the the specifically the origin myths that I was interested in the brute the so called brute chronicle because it was about Brutus mm. and Britain, um, the, the Trojan Brutus, in manuscript form 
Yeah. They're, they're very rarely illustrated. And even though we only have a fraction of the surviving manuscripts that were made in the Middle Ages, it doesn't seem like it was a common practice. The, the, the text itself survives in many hundreds of manuscripts. In illustrated form is a handful. Yeah. It's possible that cycles of illustrations existed in wall paintings and things that have been lost. And I'm sure that is the case, but it still doesn't seem to have been common. But um, at the yeah. same time, I think that there's... In doing my PhD project, I got really excited about this world of, you know, you talk um, in your book about meditative, finding meditative space as a mother mm. and mm. in your you know, in enchantment, your most recent book. And, um, yeah. and one of the things I found quite inspiring is this idea of that, that private reading is a monastic idea and not the norm in the middle ages, uh, the consumption of stories in the Middle Ages was largely, you know, they were recited. So if you mm. if you lived in a somewhere like Goodrich Castle where there was, you know, so let's say we're wealthy enough to be living in Goodrich Castle and we're in this <laughs> um the domestic area and there's a nice big chamber. And uh, in the evening you've got probably quite a few children around because a place like that would have had foster children as well as the family's right. children. You've got quite a few women. The, the husbands might well be at war <laughs> and, so, yeah, okay. and, and the uncles and things. You might have some old folk whose eyesight isn't that good necessarily, or, uh, you know, everyone's clustered together in this room and there might be a cleric who is reading a story and mm. or they might be reading directly from a manuscript or they might be reciting from memory. And that enables the kids to be getting on with whatever they're getting on with or the women to be doing embroidery or you know, they're doing their craft work or just picking up toddlers. Who knows? Yeah. You, Chasing children around. Yeah. 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 <laughs> While listening to a story. I mean, I, I, I do put on audiobooks sometimes where I've, um, you know, my daughters are playing and she's not, doesn't really need me, but I, I can keep half an eye on her, but also listen to a story. You know, I think it's yeah. the same thing, but equally around these rooms, there's a good amount of evidence that in bedrooms and in domestic spaces, there were tapestries and wall paintings showing the siege of Antioch or, um, <laughs> you know, uh, more... Um, yeah, those kind of grand... These kind of... Uh, I mean, poor, yeah. poor Edward II was raised in um, the his bedroom, was uh, surrounded by scenes of the fall of all te Old Testament tyrants. Oh, God. <laughs> his dad was like, be warned, you know, but... Um, and he, you know, then he gets deposed and um, killed. Well, there we by go. I mean, obviously, you know, stories are very effective. <laughs> I, I love, I think that stories in the Middle Ages were everywhere and text was not the dominant form. Well, text, I mean, text in the sense of there, there were authoritative versions of stories, but in a written mm. form that they were just mnemonics. I think Mary Carruthers, a, a scholar who's really brilliant, um, describes medieval books as mnemonics. They're just somewhere that you can learn by rote from. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you've got a nice illustrated, the versions that I looked at, which had these pen and wash illustrations, I think they're very well suited to small group reading in a domestic space where you're looking over each other's shoulders or you may be all looking right. over the shoulder of the person who's got it on their lap. So that you can have sight of those pictures without yeah. necessarily reading them yourself. Yeah. yeah. And they're kind of, the text and image have this, um, a different relationship. An image has much more, more um, supremacy perhaps than it does. Mm. Maybe I'm talking rubbish. I mean, we have TV, but I think, you know, imagine. <laughs> well, it would have been, been more noticeable. It would have been more unique. You, there wouldn't have been the glut of images that we have right now, I guess. And the idea of painting onto your children's bedroom walls, scenes without words of mm. uh, those, those, those stories that our culture celebrates and, and then being able to use them as cues for storytelling as they, uh, you know, as you're sitting with them at night, rather than having a pile of books, which is great too. But you know, it's, um, that's, I found, I found really exciting. Yeah. And it's I, a wonderful idea. And trying to come back to your, the question that started all of this, just that, although this wasn't commonly illustrated, I think people thought about these pictures in a very, these stories in a very pictorial way. Mm. And it's made me think that storytelling was a much more social experience or, or story, the reception of stories. I mean, obviously storytelling, we, we understand to be social, but the, the very notion of a story itself would have been a much more communal idea, 
Whereas I think now we read and we read in privacy and Mm -hmm. we tend to think that, you know, we're all following slightly different interests or having a different encounter with the text, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of kind of contemporary scholarship is about that unique personal relationship that that we have with a a written text as, as a reader and the kind of interchange between the reader and the writer. But storytelling would have been a social idea at that point. Yeah, I think, um, well, I don't know if you find this when you're touring with your with a new book, but mm. people will say, oh, I've, I've just listened to the audio book. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. At, at which point I'll always say, no, 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 that's great. You know, it's <laughs> Definitely listen to the audio book, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's going back to a, a form of consumption of literature that is actually much more practical for people that can't make that solitary, ideal space in their days to consume literature privately through. Well, we have this weird idea that listening to the audiobook is cheating somehow. Um, And that there's this, you know, glory in physically reading the words with your eyes, because that is what school told us was a really good thing for us to do. And of course, you you encounter the same story. and, And there's loads of people for whom reading the audiobook means they can just simply take the information in in a much more clear way. I mean, it, yes. I, I don't know why we got this idea that, that reading with our eyes is better than reading with our ears. Yeah, it's I, a different, it's, uh, you know, it's a different craft and a different, a slightly different experience, but I don't think it needs mm. to be, be given a hierarchy. You know, I think if you can, yeah. if you can inter- listen to an interesting story while your child is playing for you know, 20 minutes on their own, <laughs> Uh, my child will turn around to me and say one of the words that she's just heard. Yeah. And you think that would have been happening? You know, you could just imagine some child going, Antioch in, in Goodrich. Yeah. <laughs> what does Antioch mean? Yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, there's, you know, we've got this really clear separation now of stories for adults and stories for children. And our adult stories are, you know, have got things happening in them that we don't want children to know about. And they have language that we don't want children to repeat. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually the, the notion of separate literature for children is actually a, a very, very recent one historically, I think. Yes. Yeah, that was something I was really interested in when I was um, more of an active academic. That was how do you differentiate between manuscripts designed for the, a young readership and, uh, and yeah. not... I think that it allowed these, one of the manuscripts I was particularly interested in was a life of Edward the Confessor or a history of Edward the Confessor written in, mm. made in Westminster in the 13th century, is now in Cambridge. It's a really good story. It's all about <laughs> Edward the Confessor coming to the throne after the Danish kings. He, uh, and then he becomes, he's very holy and he can perform all of these miracles. And then there's the baddies in the court, which is Earl Godwin, whose son, Harold Godwinson ends up being king after Ed. It's one of the contenders for the king, yeah. Yeah, and then he yeah. gets the arrow in his eye at Hastings. And this is illustrated in the book, The Battle of Hastings, with the arrow kind of going into <laughs> Harold's eye. But it's got a real poetry to it because at the beginning of the text, Harold's father, Earl Godwin, has blinded or kind of caused to be blinded uh, Edward the Confessor's older brother, who was a claimant for the throne. Ah. Um, and so there's a real obvious symmetry, kind of literary symmetry to this idea that Harold pays for the sin of his father at Hastings. And this arrow- so it could have just been a narrative callback, you're saying. All of this, you know, wondering whether Harold was actually shot through the eye. Yeah. It could just be a literary device. No, no, that's, and I, I really believe that. And that's, um, it's argued by a guy called Bernstein as well, who, um, who sort of makes that point initially that there's it's so common with chronicle writers if there's a well actually what Bernstein um, suggests is that when you illustrate something you have to include more detail often than when you mm. write it so you can if you write something you can say Harold died at Hastings if you illustrate the battle scene you have to kind of say how he died you can't you can't just right. him sort of yeah. die <laughs> you know you need you need some information in there so. Um, whether or not the arrow on the battle on the Bayo tapestry is original, and obviously there's all kinds of arguments over whether it was added later or not. Yeah. In the early chronicles, you do start seeing this idea of an arrow that has fallen out of the sky. It's not shot by anyone in particular with the particular aim of getting Harold. It's a, a, a confusion, and there are arrows going everywhere. And this one happens to land in Harold's eye, and as such, it seems a kind of divinely directed arrow. Guided arrow. has decided it's going to go that way. And this perhaps begins appearing in the written versions of the battle because initially it's illustrated. And that illustration had a kind of poetic justice. That choice had a poetic justice to it based on 
what El Godwin had done blinding Edward the Confessor's brother. So I love, I had to do uh, medieval history for my, my A-level, my history A-level. Mm-hmm. We were like only two schools in the country that did it. And it was this sort of, there were, <laughs> there were no textbooks for us or anything because, you know, no, it wasn't really commercial to do that. And I spent such a lot, long time, you know, studying how Harold died. Yeah. And I've never come across the idea that it was narrative justice. And that now makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <sighs> so the point of all of this being, oh yeah, so this story, this um, history of Edward the Confessor, it functions on many levels. In the manuscript, you've got these big, almost cartoon strip, comic strip like illustrations of the story and they run the full almost the top half of every double page spread is just pictures and they they have a they're really good pictures too and they're they're good by our standards they're not kind of these monty python medieval pictures they are (laughs) dynamic and they flow into each other in a left to right pattern so they go you know they follow the kind of narrative thrust of the text and uh you've got all of this all of this action going on and then underneath that you've got little captions to the pictures, which just say in very simple French verse, and often, you know, our children's books are often written in verse as well to make them more memorable, what's going on. So you've got this little vignette in text. Then underneath that, you've got a few columns of French verse again. So French being the mother tongue, giving us a more extended version of the story. And that's, that's got things like metaphor in it, you know, so that's, that's a literary thing. But I really believe and and some of there is this is part of a group of manuscripts where some of them have little inscriptions or one of them has an inscription in the beginning saying you know Eleanor the the um duchess of arundel lent this to uh claire there's something of let's say i don't know think of a duchy somewhere but um yeah, she, cornwall yeah cornwall so these noble women are lending them to each other these books and you just think this would work so well for reading with young children because you've got your your more complex story underneath, but you, they can read it through the pictures. They can also, uh, as they get better at reading their mother tongue, they can start seeing reading the captions, and then as mm. they improve, they can move on to the to what you've been reading all along. You know, there's a kind of denser text. I think that we we produce books specifically for children, and that maybe was prohibitively yeah. costly in the Middle Ages when books were already a luxury item. But here you've got these kind of multi-layered texts, like a par- like having a parallel translation almost yeah. or something like that for children or the adults. Living. Yeah. It's so interesting. The, the whole of this conversation has really been about how similar the devices are then and now. We actually understand mythology, folklore, storytelling in more similar ways than I'd realised. And I, I just want to close really by asking whether you think we have lost anything between now and then in terms of our thinking, like whether there's a, has been a shift in mindset and whether we could make more use of mythological thinking in this current age, whether it, it would still have utility to us now. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> difficult because I enjoy it. And so I think, I think it's great. You know, I think that seeing the world with these alternative histories, when I was studying, you know, I was studying at Girton College, Cambridge, and there would be punting tours where people would take people up and down the cam and give them the history of of the buildings and that kind of thing. And uh, once I ended up somehow punting some people I think they I can't remember who they were but they weren't from Cambridge <laughs> complete strangers <laughs> and, and I can't punt very well but uh I had very little to tell them in terms of actual history of Cambridge but I had loads of things that I that may or may not have happened or had been made up about this place or this you know and you've um one being there's a bridge by Trinity Hall Cambridge known as Orgasm Bridge um, it's not what it's not actually nobody ever told me about that <laughs> it's not actually I only heard about the mathematical bridge <laughs> it's um I don't know what its real name is but it's quite a steep um it's quite a steep bridge and so uh when you cycle up it by the time you get to the top you're kind of panting furiously um <laughs> and so that was always what it was called while I was there so I was like this isn't called orgasm bridge and this isn't called you know <laughs> this is and it didn't happen here but you know, um <laughs> And so I think I've always been drawn to what are the things that we tell about a place that might not have happened or definitely didn't happen or we liked, would like to believe happened. 
And I think in, in every, wherever we live, those stories exist. And it's a fun, it's a really fun way of viewing your immediate surroundings. So I suppose yeah. in terms of as a putting mythological goggles on as a historian, that's not something that's accessible to everyone necessarily. Mm. But putting mythological goggles on as a citizen of wherever you are, <laughs> Yeah. Um and listen, listening in to to those anecdotes and things that probably aren't true but mm. give your home its color and humor that's something I think is probably would you know so be something lots of people could enjoy and benefit from if 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 they're interested in myth making. Absolutely. Amy, thank you so much. That was such a wonderful account thank and you. um if people would like to find you, where should they go looking for you? In the middle of Exmoor, as far from any words as possible. <laughs> also, um, uh, on Twitter, as um, at Amy underscore Historia, the Latin for history. That is. And then on Instagram, as at Historia underscore Prince. And Prince is in a um, printed image, not as in the son of a king. <laughs> or indeed a queen. It's very important to point that out with your work. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really, really good fun. I enjoyed that. I'm now safely back inside again. And either that rainy fog has cleared up or it just seems like nothing once you get back inside. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really am on a mission to learn more about the ancient mythology of the British Isles. I'm fascinated by not only the stories, the really beautiful stories that take such different tracks to the ones we're used to, but also by the way that it reveals different ways of thinking about the world the way it can show us how to flip our understanding of everyday life and how we're in very defined tracks in our current existence about how to see things. And it always really takes me aback to think how the landscape would have been so different when these stories were being created and told and how, we, you know, the same science wasn't there or our understanding of how everything worked and how we had to invent accounts of everything to help us to understand and to help us feel safe in our world. I hope you'll take a look at Amy Jeff's books. They're brilliant. And they're so beautiful as well. Storyland and Wild. I recommend them both to you. Or maybe you just want to pick up the mythology of wherever you are. It always gives you something. Anyway, we'll be back soon with another episode of How We Live Now. I'll see you then. Bye. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for being here to explore how we live now. This podcast is presented by Catherine May, produced by Megan Hutchins and Buddy Peace, with social media by Sarah Horner and communications by Becca Pierce. Buddy Peace also composed the wonderful incidental music. For updates, show notes, transcriptions and plenty of stories, subscribe to my newsletter at catherinemay.substack.com where you can also upgrade to support the show and join my vibrant community of readers, writers and wanderers. And finally, if you enjoyed my podcast, please consider buying my new book, Enchantment. There's a link in the show notes. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.